So, uh, does anybody know anything about the songs of ascent? It's the songs you sing as you go up to the temple. Yep, they were they were songs songs that they would sing out as they were uh, returning to Jerusalem for festivals. Uh, often the festival of booths, which was one of the big big festivals that they would uh, keep as a pilgrimage festival. And so there's their ascending to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's in the hill country, they would be going uh, uphill. Everything in Israel is either uphill or downhill. So, like, um, so that's why they're called Songs of Ascent. Uh, that plus they're specifically, uh, some of them are around the actual temple worship and what they would have done as part of the ceremony of worship. But the reason I picked this song is... Uh, Knowing that it's a song of ascent, and this would be uh, one of the songs that would have been sung by the pilgrims as they were returning to Jerusalem. Why were they returning to Jerusalem? I mean, there was obviously there was Israel that was dispersed in the north and the south, and uh, temple worship was uh, prescribed, uh, especially these festivals to be kept in Jerusalem. But there was a uh, an event that happened that caused the Jews to become widely dispersed. Mm-hmm. And uh, we read about that event in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 36. So if you go to Second Chronicles chapter 36, this is the, the final days of uh, Jerusalem and the first temple, Solomon's temple, that was built. And from, from that time forward, the Jewish people were a conquered people, and there started to be changes, both culturally and um, now primarily culturally, among the the, uh, the Jewish people, the remnant that led into a period which we're going to call the intertestamental period, in between the last of the writings um, of the prophets Malachi and uh, the advent of Jesus Messiah and that what we see then is that from Messiah there was then what we call the New Testament there was a collection of writings associated with the New Testament that pick up in Mark as earliest gospel and and we read through uh, the letters of Paul and and that but there's a large period of time where there was no writings at all at least that are captured in our our uh, Bible so there are there were writings that occurred in that period of time and there were cultural changes we're picking up in at the beginning of that conquering and the captivity and we're going to kind of retrace through what were the central pieces of the Jewish uh, practice at that point in time what they lost and how they how they fought to retain it so that's kind of the theme that we're going to be marching through this morning, and we're going to look at um, some of the writings associated with that that are captured in the Bible. So we pick up in chapter 36 in Chronicles, at the very end of chapter 35, you read about the death of Josiah. And, uh, so wait a minute, did you finish John? That was John's yep. <laughs> yep. And we finished the Q&A on John. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what happens, you just lose, you lose. <laughs> but we can end up in John again if you'd like. Uh, so, 
how much do you know about the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah? How many good kings were there in the northern kingdom called Israel? Zero. 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 That's that's an important fact to to know. How many good kings were there in uh, the southern tribe of Judah? I saw four or five. I I would count eight. And and I, I count a good king based upon whether Scripture says that they were a good king. So if the testimony of Scripture says that uh, they were a good king, then I, I put a little check mark behind them. And there's, I keep the list of good kings. And if you look at the list of good kings, the last good king was a reformer king. And his name was Josiah. Josiah, um, in the course of, uh, when he was a young man, and he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Right, so Jeremiah and Josiah would have probably known of each other if they didn't know each other uh, in their very early years. Um, and Josiah found a part of the law, what's called the Torah, is part of the. It was hidden in the ruins of the, the uh, or the discarded uh, closets in the temple. And when he uncovered it and he had that read to him, all of a sudden he realized what the kings were supposed to be doing and what they weren't doing. And he went about restoring uh, temple worship. He went about um, cleaning up the, the false practices of his predecessor kings, the worst of which was Manasseh. And he uh, went about reform. And so you read in verse 20 of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, verse 35, it says, After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. Now, Josiah had no business in this war, um, but nonetheless, he aligned himself with Egypt. And at this period in history, Egypt was trying to push back against the forces that had come in from the north, from Syria region. First from Assyria, and subsequent to them, Babylon. And so this battle at Carchemish was uh, one of the major battles that occurred that was decisive as to who was going to get what parts of the land. Josiah, because he was aligned with Egypt, ended up going to war when he had really no business being there. And he ended up dying. So even though he was a good king, he died in in a battle. And what we read is that um, after he died, we read in verse 25, um, says, Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah. And all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah, <coughs> of devotion, has written in the law uh, of the Lord. And his acts, first to last, behold, they are written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. And so what we read about Josiah is that he was a good king. He was a reformer king. It says, Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in the place of his father in Jerusalem. Uh, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, so he didn't have a very long reign. Then the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem and imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold. 
The king of Egypt made Eliakim, his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Uh, but Necho, Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and brought him to Egypt. So the king of Egypt, who Josiah had tried to align with, ended up turning on him anyway, because he's going into captivity. He needed to build up his treasuries so that he could fight off the coming horde from the north. And so that's what was going on. This land in between of Israel, um, which is the land in between. It's kind of like uh, it's the, the highways north-south uh, through uh, between Egypt and the northern uh, kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon. He's, ma- he's making them uh, a vassal. He's making them a conquered peoples, and they're having to pay tribute. So even though they're not officially conquered yet, they still have a reigning king. That king is subordinate to the king of Egypt. <clears throat> and he actually put uh, a puppet king in there. So Jehoiakim was 25 years old, old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is one of those things that I always keep, you know, keep mark of. So that means he was a bad king. He wasn't a good king, he was a bad king. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. So you read about this account in, uh, in the, the Chronicles of the Kings, or the Book of the Kings. Um, it gives you a little bit more detail. This would have been the first um, assault on Jerusalem by Babylon. And it would have happened at around 605 B.C. And at this point in time, the, uh, the royalty was taken off um, to Babylon. And then there was a subsequent, uh, in 597 B.C., a subsequent assault where Jehoiakim was taken. So these, there were two deportations in there, and this is part of those deportations that are being uh, recited. And that what happened is, is that when the, the kings would conquer a people, the way that you would demonstrate that you'd actually conquer the people is you would make their gods subordinate to your gods. So the gods of Babylon had to be um, the, the victors over the gods of Israel. Of course, there was a single god of Israel. And that god was worshipped at the temple. So what they would do is they would take the stuff out of the temple and they would take it and and use it in a desecrated way to show that their God had conquered the God of Israel. And so that's what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar is in the process of taking out the royalty, taking out the treasures of the temple, not for the purpose of stocking up his treasuries like the king of Egypt did, but to show that he was truly the king of the world and that his God had conquered the God of the Israels, uh, God of the Jews. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations which he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. So Jehoiachin, is another, he has another name that you might recognize him by from genealogies. It's called Jeconiah. So depending on where you look, you'll see two different names used for the same individual. Jehoiachin and Jeconiah are the same person. So when you read in the genealogies uh, in, in Matthew, for example, you'll find in there mentioned Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. 
Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. <coughs> Again, not a good king, had a very short reign. How much evil can you do at eight years old? Well, what do you suppose the evil was that was going on? That's a really good question. How much evil eight. can you do at eight? Mm-hmm. And what does that look Mine like? Mine says eight. Mine says eight. Wait, which one? What verse? Mine says Jehoiachin was eight years old. I have 18. He became king. I have a little note on it, though. Oh, it yeah. says one Hebrew manuscript, some Septuagint manuscripts in Syriac. Say. The point is, is that he was a very young man. Hmm. So, granted, you could make it eight or 18, but nonetheless, he was a guy that had no experience. Well, okay, 18, you yeah. can do something, but hey, what can you do? <laughs> well, you well no, I met some eight-year-olds that were pretty evil. <laughs> you wouldn't want to know me when I was So when I was, eight, when I was 18, I was the same person. So anyway, what, what happened was, what, what evil is it that the people were doing? What evil was it that the kings were doing? Of which Josiah was different. Right, because Josiah was a good king, and my uh, reading, which we're going to read here shortly, would be that if if the people had followed with their heart Josiah, they probably wouldn't have gone into captivity, but they didn't. They followed with their heart Josiah's grandfather Manasseh, and what I read is the measure of a good and a bad king is not necessarily that the person did some incredibly evil deed in the way that we would see evil deeds in the world. So look, let's look at some of our kings and give an assessment of whether we would say that they're good or bad. Let's take a look at uh, an administration in this country, and, and we have the equivalent of a king, a president, a single point of accountability, and a single point of authority within the executive branch. And we would measure by the world success and goodness by economic prosperity. There was a president in recent history in which the national debt was zero. Not the national debt, the, the annual De- budget, deficit, deficit excuse budget. me, was zero. They had an opportunity to actually start paying back the debt, the national debt. <laughs> so, I mean, our national debt is trillions of dollars, right? But there was a time when the budget actually had a surplus that they were understanding based on revenue coming in because the economy was so healthy. Does anybody know when that was? What administration that was? Clinton. 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 Clinton administration, at the end of his administration, he actually had a budget surplus. And they didn't know what to do because they, they had been deficit spending for so long, they all of a sudden they had the opportunity to do the right thing and start paying down the debt. And they didn't. They expanded programs. And as a result, then, subsequent to that, we ended up in a war, which then, of course, flipped things right back around. Right? But there was a period of economic prosperity. There was a period where everything was good. Real estate, as a result of that good period of time, got into a bubble. Um, there was a whole bunch of things that happened as a result of an eight-year reign. 
There was a 52-year reign of Manasseh. 52 or 55? 52. 52. And in Manasseh's reign, they had the same kind of um, prosperity. Even though they were surrounded by enemies, things looked really good if you were if you were a citizen of that kingdom at that point in time. Your bank account was flush. It looked like peace on your borders. Um, and he didn't do anything that was particularly egregious. So what? He set up some Asherah poles. You know, so what? That he brought in the Canaanite worship. It's like... Dude, my bank account is full. I got food on my table and nobody's trying to trying to kill me. That's a good thing, right? No, he was one of the evilest kings of all time. So in verse 12, mm-hmm. chapter 13, it says, speaking of Jehoiakim, yep. he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself. Before Jeremiah the prophet, he spoke before the Lord. So, right. so the apparently the definition of what's good and what isn't good, well, is what's laid out here. And in this case, he didn't humble himself before right. the, basically the Lord's appointed. So that's interesting commentary, I think. It, it is interesting commentary. Whereas if you look at Josiah <laughs> and the verses that we skipped, mm-hmm. I mean, he went out, he went out to war. Um, against <laughs> what what the uh, Egypt king is saying that God is with him, <clears throat> and so I don't need you, <laughs> right? And he, so he gets shot with an arrow. So I mean, he might have been a good king, but he but he still did stupid at least, things. At least that part, <laughs> yeah, didn't make a lot of sense. So if you look at the the. You know, so it gives the accounts of some of the things that people did in their lives. Like Hezekiah, he was also one of the good kings. Hezekiah was the one that showed the, the stores of the temple to the the king to the king's emissaries that came in, and he said, "Hell yeah, look at all we've got!" Right? And he had peace in his time as well. But God warned him. He said, "You know, that's that's just a it's just a temporary period of time." Yeah. So Hezekiah did some foolish things too and got called on the carpet for it. But he was a good king because Hezekiah was a king that was faithful. He trusted in the Lord. So it didn't really matter, you're talking about presence, it didn't really matter about prosperity. That doesn't really come into this except for when you're getting attacked and carried off. But the point is whether or not you recognize the lordship of Lord God. You know? Right. I, I think that's true. I think it has to do with the, that's the, problem, the heart condition. Right. I don't see a lot of that happening. Yeah. I can forgive a lot of stuff. Right. <laughs> well, it was it was the heart condition. It was the heart condition that was... So God, he looks at the heart. Right? So he looked at David's heart and he looked and he said, here's a, a man after my own heart. Well, we know that David was a murderer, an adulterer, and, right? But what was the distinctive about David? I read about it in Psalm 51. When he's busted by the prophet Nathan, right, who comes to him and tells him a story, and David is just enraged by this story. It's like, how unjust is this situation? 
and Nathan says, oh, by the way, you're the, you're the oppressor in this story. You're the one who created this injustice. Um, you're the one who didn't bring life. Instead, you brought death. And David, in an instant, recognizes it and is broken. He's, he recognizes that he's the man, that that is true about him. And when he comes full, full knowledge to his sin, he recognizes that that sin is against God first. And it was against other people. But first it was against God. And so he recognizes that there is nothing that he can bring because he's totally broken to God. But a broken and contrite heart. And he comes and throws himself at the mercy of God. That is a man after God's heart. That he trusts in God, even though he himself was a failure. Hezekiah trusted in God, even though he himself made mistakes. He also did some good things. He preserved the people against the Assyrian assault. And he trusted God when those around him taunted him not to trust God. He said, what are you trusting in this God for? He can't save you. Our armies have you completely surrounded. Right? You read the story of Hezekiah. Josiah is the same way. He's a man who has faith in God, and as a result of his faith and his humbleness, he restores the place where people would meet with God. So even though Manasseh was removing that place and marginalizing it, minimizing it, he was taking away the place where the people would come to God and come to the very mercy seat of God. Um, Josiah restored that. But the people didn't follow. That was the problem. Even though they had a good king, the people didn't want a good king. They wanted a, a king that would give them what they wanted. Prosperity. Right? It's like, well, you're not like your, your grandfather. You're doing all these things that, like uh, reinstituting the festivals and worship and all this kind of stuff. So what happened is, is when Josiah died, they started doing the very things again that the, his grandfather had done. And you keep reading down here so Zedekiah was 21 when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. So God actually came to his people through the prophets and said, this is what's going on. You guys got to pay attention. This is going to lead to your destruction. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made, himself, made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. So the king, from the top, turned his heart against God. And then we read more. It says, Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. So the leadership, had, from the king to the priesthood, had turned against God. And then we read more. The Lord God of their father sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. 
This is one of the, those scary verses that I read in the Old Testament. You can actually come to a place in this world where the course that you're on has no good outcome. There is no remedy. So you have to radically get a course change. And that course change can be really hard. That course change can even end your life. And a lot of people lost their lives in this period of time. Because if you read in um, some of the other prophets, God told them, I'm going to do this thing in your time which, which you will not believe. I'm going to bring an enemy of the world, these, these terrible, faithless people, and they're going to come in and conquer you. Right? That's what he told them. He said, the very people that you would not think are my hand of correction are going to come in and correct you. And that's exactly what happened. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. So the people had no remedy. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So this is what happened. The people got to a place where they, not only the leadership, not only the king, not only the priesthood, but the people, the followers, had bought into this lie. And they had abandoned God as their, as their king. And the result of that is death and destruction. And so God was showing them in a very uh, literal, real way that this is the end of that course. But he made a promise in the midst of that. So you read about that promise in Jeremiah. So if you go to Jeremiah uh, chapter 29. So Jeremiah's sitting there, watching all this happening, having the Lord uh, give him insight as to what he's going to do and what the correction for the people is going to be. And he, he knows that this destruction is coming upon them because there is no remedy. And this is what Jeremiah says in uh, 29.10. It says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So a lot of times we pull out, pull this out of context. And how many of you heard this out of context? God has a plan for your life. Well, absolutely he does. Um, you just can't use this as a proof text for that. 
Um, but what this is about is about that God, even though he brought this destruction upon the people, he brought it on them for the purpose of bringing them into the life that he had promised. So he had promised them life. He had promised that they would have a place of um, be, be the first to proclaim that to the world. Right? If you go back and you see that through Abraham's seed, the whole world would be blessed. And we understand that that seed, as Paul later on in the New Testament with further revelation, gives us insight that that seed is Jesus. It's singular. That of the lineage of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, who was a son of Jacob, called Israel, would come one who would bring life to the whole world. So, and that that was proclaimed first by those that were the witnesses that were Jews, right? So God had this plan from the very beginning, but he knew that the course of the world was going to lead to death and destruction. It was going to lead to captivity and to bondage. And even though he had brought them out of bondage as a people to show the world, hey, this is a mighty God, he can actually bring you out of bondage. That promise had not yet been fulfilled. They were in captivity waiting for that 70 years to elapse. And that's where the beginning of the intertestamental period starts. So we actually have some, some uh, scripture that fills in the gaps for us. We know that these events, this event here, where they destroyed Jerusalem and they carried everything off. So we read from verse 17 through verse 20. That destruction of the people for this purpose occurred in 587 or 586 B.C. So we know that there was a first captivity that came where Daniel was taken off around 604 B.C., that there was a second one where Jehoiakim was, uh, was taken off and Jehoiachin came in and he was taken off into captivity and that that was a second uh, siege against Jerusalem and, and the temple and that occurred around 597 B.C. and then there was a third one which was like a nuclear event. They weren't going to leave anything standing. It's like, okay, we tried this, we tried making you a puppet king not working, we're done now. And the king of Babylon came in and leveled it. He took down the walls, he took down the temple. What do you suppose, once these people realized what had happened? So a very small remnant was taken into captivity. So this was a large people group. Remember when they came out of Egypt, they were probably over 2 million people going out into the desert. They were a lot of folk. And that we know that that population went up and down as they settled the land and did all sorts of things. Even though the Assyrians had come in and conquered the northern part of Israel, um, and then all that was left that could be called um, Israel from the uh, descendants of Jacob would be the tribe of Judah, which had assimilated Simeon. Um, they were still fairly populous in the land until the Babylonians came in. And when the Babylonians came in, it says they took them all. They either killed them or they took them. And if they left them, they left them for a purpose to basically keep that land alive 
but not farm it, that it had to sit fallow for 70 years, right? It had to sit unworked. And that um, whoever was left there was those that weren't either, uh, they missed them when they came through to kill them, or they decided they weren't worth taken into captivity. So this is the great dispersion of the Jews. There were probably about 3 million people at the end of uh, the reign of the Babylonians. So they went, they were, their population went chunk like this, down, and a bunch were taken captive. At least a quarter would have been taken captive, probably from around Jerusalem. And those that were left were very small in number. And then they expanded in captivity. They started, um, started building lives, right? They had kids. They had stores. We know this because under the Persian rule, they had become very, very prosperous again to the point where people weren't so sure about the Jews. They wanted to kill them. Haman wanted to wipe out all Jews because they were like... They, they hadn't gone back to Israel. They stayed, and they were very prosperous. In fact, Haman, so that story about Persia, actually would be taking place in modern-day Iran. And up until recent history, in Iran had the largest population of Jews anywhere in the world, even over the United States. So that tells you something. Yep. That seems counterintuitive, huh? But if you were to, to count the people uh, by tribe, there was a large population of Jews in Iran. And the reason why is because when this dispersion happened, they went out and they settled and they made lives for themselves. Where was the place that the largest part of that dispersion took place? In Babylon and Persia. And that's what we're going to read about. So what happened to the Jews as they stayed where they were at, and some of them went back under Ezra, under Nehemiah, and they went back and they did um, two things. What was the center of the Jewish culture that they wanted to preserve? The temple. The temple. Why was the temple the center that they wanted to preserve? Worship. But it was more than just worship, because you can build a house of worship anywhere. The presence. Mm-hmm. That when you read in Ezekiel about the presence of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem, that's a scary thing. It talks about, um, and, and we could go to Ezekiel and you could read that account where um, we understand that the presence of God was actually in the Holy of Holies, that he was present with them at the mercy seat. So the mercy seat, what is the mercy seat? Pardon? Yeah, there was a couple of cherubim on top. The Ark of the Covenant? It was the, Ark, the, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. It was that which um, contained the promise of God. Right? Was, what was, why was it important? Because God had made a promise, and even though the people had kept artifacts, there was a promise of provision, in the manna. There was a promise of the, the Ten Commandments were in there. There was a promise of life. Aaron's bud, or Aaron's rod that, that budded. Right? 
So you see the promise of God was kept there as a memorial, but it was more than a memorial, because what we read about is that when the people had done what God instructed, he actually came and sat upon that mercy seat. The presence of God was there. They called it the Shekinah glory of God. Right? It, when Moses came into the presence of God through that, through that uh, apparatus that was constructed, through the, the, uh, the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies and all of that, he actually had his countenance changed. He actually became shiny. That's what they say in the Veggie Tales. He's shiny. Okay. So it actually changed him physically. Right? Such as people could tell, wow, he's been in the presence of God. And that was scary for them. <coughs> but what was really important was that when Solomon built the temple and he built the holy place and the holy of holies and they placed the mercy seat there, that was the place where the people would actually come into communion with God. And what we read about throughout all of their law, right, both the written law and the oral law, because they had an oral law um, that we understand eventually got codified in the Mishnah, and then uh, that was captured with some of the other commentary in the Talmud, which is written, but the Talmud is originally the oral law. And um, all of that is about how we uh, come into God's presence in communion with him. Right? So when they were looking at the different aspects of the law, when they were looking at the different ceremonies, when they were looking at all of this, it was all about that temple and that Holy of Holies. And that they understood that the promise of God was fulfilled in that Holy of Holies. That the high priest would once a year go in according to the law, and he would present an atoning sacrifice. And atonement has three... Um, Three aspects to it. One of the aspects of atonement has to do with appeasing the, the righteous anger of God about sin. So why would God be so angry about sin? God is angry about sin because sin leads to death. It is the antithesis of who God is. God is bringing the life bringer. He is the creator of all living things. He communicates his eternal life to his creation. That's what he, his intent is. That's what his will is. And sin destroys that. That makes God really angry about sin. And so when we read about the wrath of God, that wrath is righteous anger about sin. And what this atoning sacrifice did, one of the things it did was it actually appeased the anger of God. It satisfied it. So there's a sense of satisfaction in this sacrifice being offered. But there's also a sense of covering. That um, sin, when you look at it, is ugly. It's evil at its core. It's evil expressed in creation. And this atoning sacrifice actually covered it as well. It not only uh, took away the anger of God, appeased, satisfied, 
but it also covers it so that God could look upon that which is sinful and see righteousness. You ever heard these kind of things about Christ? <laughs> that when God looks at us, he's looking at the atoning sacrifice, Jesus. Yeah. A question. Um, when the temple was destroyed, when, okay, God left the temple, right? Yep. And, and they came in and they destroyed it. Did they destroy the Ark of the Covenant with it? So that's the mystery that Indiana Jones would lead you to believe. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because that was an important part of the temple, and when they would rebuild it, if they didn't have that, and they knew that's where God <coughs> dwelt on the mercy seat, then how did yep. they deal with that? They So when they rebuilt the temple, which we're going to read about, um, it was it never had the, the, uh, the stature and the glory that the original temple had. Even though Herod made it a great monolith, or not a monolith, but a, a great, you know, one of the great wonders of the world. But did they talk about... God's glory coming down and dwelling in it when they rebuilt it? Um, they still did the uh, atoning sacrifice in there, and there was a reconsecration of that, um, which we'll read about under the Maccabees, where they, they came in and they um, reconsecrated the altar, and they re, um, re-sanctified or set apart the holy things within the altar. I don't know the answer to that question as to whether the Shekinah glory of God actually returned to that place. I think God himself actually returned to that place in Jesus. Uh, and, and not just as the one who um, was the hope of the promise, but the promise fulfilled. Well, they still had to have had the Holy of Holies, holies because yeah. the veil was ripped when, yes. when Christ... Yeah. So they were, they were still doing the sacrifice... But what I would suggest, especially as, what, as the intertestamental period progressed, from this time when they went into captivity, where they had totally lost their, their compass bearing, to the point where they actually got a kind of compass bearing back, they totally misunderstood what the law was about. And you see that because Jesus had to reteach them all the time. You know, our great, uh, the longest discourse on the law is found in Matthew, called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's actually a collection of teachings that are all about what the law is. What is the will of God? The law of God is the will of God. What is the will of God? What does that look like? <clears throat> and that he had to teach them, and that they said, you know, no one ever taught us like this. That's what their comment was. Like, wow, we never heard this before. They're not teaching us this. And yet nobody could find what what he was teaching was wrong. Because it wasn't. He was trying to help them get that compass back. And that that compass actually pointed to him. And that's the piece that they couldn't accept. Some of them. Um, But some of them did. Right? So... I don't know the answer as to whether the Shekinah glory returned to the Holy of Holies, but um, I know that the people never quite got back to what they originally had. And you read about that because they weep about what they lost and are still weeping. And when they see Christ revealed, they're going to weep the hardest that they've ever wept. 
Because then they're going to really know and understand what this was all about. And you read about that, Zechariah, who was one of these prophets right before that period of silence, the 400 years of silence. Well, if they had the 400 years of silence, then it's hard to imagine that God was actually in the temple well, with them. So when we say 400 years of silence, we're, um, we're 400 years where they didn't have a canonical prophetic voice. We know that the prophet was still active because when Jesus was presented uh, at the temple, there was prophetic utterance, right? So the prophet and the prophetic voice was still active. Um, once Christ had completed the promise, once the promise had been fulfilled, and it was fulfilled, we have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sins. We have Sin has been atoned for in the sense of appeasement, in the sense of covering, and in the sense of um, ransom. That the debt which we could not pay has been paid. And you see all three of those aspects when you start digging in and do a word study on atonement. Right? That's what the high priest did once a year. But what I would suggest is they didn't understand why they did it until the, the temple... Uh, curtain, the, the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies, the place where God resided and the place where the people could approach daily um, through the priest was torn such that we could actually come into the presence of God directly through the Holy Spirit. Right, so you see all of that happening. But they didn't get it. And in fact, they got pretty far sideways in this. Um, we understand that when they went from... Uh, Understanding this, this promise to rebuilding the temple, only a few of them actually came back. So there was less than 50,000 that returned at the end of the 70 years. So at the end of the 70 years, the Persians come in and they conquer the Babylonians. You all know the story um, where in a day Babylon fell, the capital of Babylon. They came in through the waterways underneath the underneath the gates, and um, while uh, Belteshazzar was celebrating and defiling the, the um, temple artifacts, um, he ended up losing his life. Because the Persians came in and in a day took Babylon, the great city, that Nebuchadnezzar looked out over his kingdom and he said, wow, no one in the world has ever done anything like this. Right? Fell in a day. And the Persians came in, and within a very short period of time, you read a decree from the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. In fact, you read about it, if you go through here, get to... Uh, Immediately after Chronicles, you pick up in Ezra, right? So you go through, you read about the final, uh, the final fall, the reason they fell, which is really important. The reason that they fell was because of the heart condition of the people. And now it picks up in Ezra and says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, which 
did in 538 B.C., saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So that's important to understand about this king. He understood there were many gods. And he wanted this God that was a former God to, um, to be restored. He says, Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and with goods and cattle together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And then he gave them all of the stuff that had been kept um, from the Babylonian exiles as far as the trappings of the temple. And they were able to take that back with them. And so in 537 B.C., about 50,000 folk headed off, less than 50,000, headed off to resettle and rebuild uh, Jerusalem. So it had been leveled. They came back. If you read through Ezra, you read um, about what happens as far as uh, how they're going about rebuilding that temple, how they lay the foundation, and then there was a period of time where they um, weren't able to successfully um, construct that temple because the people had concerns of their own. They still hadn't got it. Even though the ones that went back believed the promise, they still didn't understand necessarily what that, the, the full nature of what that promise was, what that life would look like, that God would actually redeem them. Rather, they were fighting for uh, preservation of their name. They were fighting for the preservation of their people to the point where a lot of people didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They just believed that the Jewish peoples would continue. There were some, though, that started believing in life after death. Right? That the promise of God of eternal life was true. That the God of the forefathers... Um, that their forefathers weren't dead, that they were alive in him. Right? So there's two groups of people, and you're going to see these people kind of separate out into a group of people in, in leadership um, called the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees, which are very zealous about what the law was. Right? But that's, going to, that's still got to develop. But what we read about is that um, Ezra had taken these people back, they laid a foundation, they weren't successful in um, building the temple because they became slack. So God sent another <laughs> sent another prophet to them. Does anybody know who that prophet was? Nehemiah. Well, Nehemiah wasn't a prophet. Oh, okay. Pardon? Haggai. Haggai. Right? So if you look at what parts of our Bible are talking about this period of time, there are only three after you read the Ezra and Nehemiah, which are um, prophetic narrative, historical, in, in the way that they're written. Um, the prophetic, purely prophetic, is Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And Malachi is the last written and it was about 425 B.C. So it would have happened uh, about um, the time that 
Nehemiah and Ezra complete. So Malachi would have been writing about the problems that Ezra comments on as far as the, the heart of the people and the corruption that had occurred. So the Catholic canon has Maccabees, but there are a couple others too, right? Where are yep. Yeah, so there are several others. So we'll take, go away from Mount Jeff here. And, uh, they don't do Route 66, they do. Yeah. yeah, so in the King James Version, which would be Catholic, these are, and I don't know if you can read it, um, these are the, the additional non-canonical deuteropathy. So read about this. Um, yeah, so not, not all of these were are part of what we would call the uh, Apocrypha. I'm trying to think, the second canon. Uh, Deuteropagraphal writings? Deuteropagraphal? <laughs> but anyway, um, so this would be the Apocrypha that is included in the, the Catholic Bible. And you see mm-hmm. that there are some in here. Uh, Estras, which is Ezra, so additional writings uh, from that period. Uh, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, uh, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, uh, Baruch, Song of the Three Children, which was uh, part of Daniel, uh, Story of Susanna, which was also part of Daniel, and the Idol of Bell and the Dragon, which was part of the Dan, part of the Daniel additions. So they added on to the end of Daniel. Um, Prayer of Manassas and First and Second Maccabees. So those are intertestamental writings, but we haven't got that far yet. So I'm going to take that away now that you've seen it. That's just from Wikipedia, by the way. So you go out to Wikipedia, or you can open your Catholic Bible and you'll see the same uh, pseudepigraphal writings. So the difference, uh, I mean, so the, if the Catholics have that in their Bible, then... Was there a different subdivision or something, or what? Ah, so we haven't even got that far yet. <laughs> so, so right now, where we're at culturally, and we're about out of time for this week, but that's okay. This could take a few weeks to get through. Um, where we're at right now is that Haggai came and exhorted the people. He said, "How come you guys are living in better houses than God?" That's the short of it. Um, you're sitting there fixing up your houses and the house of God is in, you know, in shambles. You laid a foundation, but you didn't finish your construction. So finish that. And Zechariah was also a prophet in the same time as Haggai. Had a little bit longer prophetic uh, ministry. And he basically was uh, reassuring the people of what Jeremiah told them. I have a plan for you. You can have hope that I'm in control. You can have hope that you are going to be redeemed. You can have hope that what you had heard about Messiah is true. So you have these two prophetic voices. One is, rebuild the temple. Get her done. Where is it that you come into communion with God? their practice, it was in the temple. And by the way, remember what that's all about. Remember, remember, remember. Of course, they didn't get it. And we understand from Zechariah that they're not going to get it until they see Messiah come. 
the second time in his glory. But nonetheless, that was a message of hope to them. And then you have Malachi. So this was, they finally finished. Um, Haggai spoke in about 520 B.C. And Zechariah in uh, about 519 B.C. And the temple was completed in 515 B.C. So it took them a while to finally finish it. And then there would be a second uh, return, but it'd be even much smaller yet, those that would come with Ezra. That's where we'll pick up next week. And that was about uh, 558 B.C. And that the last we hear is Malachi commenting on the moral decline that Nehemiah uh, speaks about in his final chapter. Let's go ahead and close here. Lord, um, let us be encouraged by your words in that the, the promise and hope that you gave to Israel and to the remnant of the tribe of Judah that you have a plan um, and your plan is to bring life and that uh, that is present and available for us today and that we can actually commune with you. Lord, we know through the sacrifice that Jesus made that um, atonement has been done once for all. And Lord, um, please help us be encouraged as we read about what the, the heart of the problem was, how the people responded. And then as we come to understand how things got twisted and turned and righted and wronged all throughout uh, that period of time leading up to Jesus coming and why certain things were said. Lord, help us be encouraged by all that so that we can see in our time when things are getting twisted and turned and righted and wronged and um, so much um, is unclear just as it was in Jesus' day, Lord, and yet your revelation is true and the hope that we have in you is true today just as it was then. And Lord, uh, we do look forward to your coming. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to dig into your word and in the few weeks that are uh, to come, to see how all of this fits together in the uh, non-canonical writings, uh, Lord, uh, as we look at those and, and their content. Lord, we thank you for all of this. Um, we ask that you be with us, that you provide, that you protect, and we're so grateful for your service. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.